This podcast is brought to you by BMJ Best Practice. BMJ Best Practice offers evidence-based, continually updated and practical knowledge that will help you make better clinical decisions. Hello and welcome to this BMJ Best Practice podcast on irritable bowel syndrome. Kieran Walsh is my name. I'm clinical director at BMJ. Irritable bowel syndrome is a chronic condition characterized by abdominal pain, bowel dysfunction, and abdominal bloating. It occurs in about 15% of the adult population, so it is very common. How should we diagnose and manage this condition? To tell us, we have on the line Professor Ned Snyder, Chief of Gastroenterology and Hepatology and Clinical Professor of Medicine at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston. And importantly, Ned is author of our BMJ Best Practice topic on this condition. So Ned, you're welcome. Let's start off by asking you to tell us what exactly is irritable bowel syndrome. This is really a, a syndrome that's uh, characterized by abdominal cramping pain. And this is associated with a change in bowel habits. Some people have diarrhea, some people have constipation. Some people tend to go back and forth between the two. Uh, and characteristically, the cramping pain is improved uh, by having a bowel movement. Okay, thank you. And how do you formally make the diagnosis? The diagnosis is primarily one of exclusion uh, because there is not a single test, a blood test or an x-ray or an endoscopic test that really diagnoses uh, irritable bowel syndrome. So you really first suspect it uh, by the history uh, as far as a workup is concerned, usually it doesn't have to be that extensive if the history is fairly straightforward. Workup partly depends upon just exactly what the symptoms are. Uh, for instance, if someone has, has diarrhea, you may want to investigate a little further to look, like, look for other things that could have symptoms that overlap with irritable bowel syndrome. We may want to get a stool for blood. Certainly, you'd want to get a CBC if they were anemic and it looked like a blood loss anemia and it wasn't from some other source then you, that would cause a significant uh, larger workup, like perhaps with colonoscopy. Other things that you would want to do is probably check for celiac disease. You would want to check a stool for giardia and depending upon where they had been or where they lived you might want to check a, a stool for over and parasites and also uh, kind of coming into vogue now is using stool inflammatory markers uh, the lactoferrin or uh, calprotectin which if these are elevated would make you suspect something other than uh, irritable bowel syndrome probably would do a similar workup if someone had alternating constipation and diarrhea. Uh, for those that uh, are constipated, you probably would not need to check like for celiac disease and giardia or parasites. If people are over 50 and they haven't had it done, uh, then a colonoscopy can be wise uh, as well. Finally, uh, bloating can be part of this syndrome as well, and sometimes just a plain film of the abdomen uh, is useful if people do have bloating. Okay, thank you. Um, and one of the things you mentioned, stool inflammatory markers, um, which might suggest something else. Tell us more about those and what else they might suggest. 
Yeah, well, I think if someone uh, had inflammatory bowel disease, and certainly in your initial differential diagnosis, if people do have diarrhea and pain, would be ulcerative colitis and inflammatory bowel disease. And if you have these, these markers will be significantly elevated. So uh, if someone had diarrhea and pain and the calprotectin came in higher than 50, then these would be people that you would very likely want to do a colonoscopy and ileoscopy on. Okay, thank you. And what are the common pitfalls, would you say, in making the diagnosis of irritable bowel syndrome? One of the more difficult things is just really deciding what test you want to do, uh, how far to take it, particularly in a young, otherwise uh, a healthy person. I think a lot of these people probably end up getting more endoscopy than they really need, more CAT scans uh, than they really need. And I think probably the most important thing you do is just uh, take a, a good history. In my own experience, the diagnosis that probably is overlooked most commonly, and this is usually in older patients, is microscopic colitis, where there's diarrhea, usually without much pain. But unless they're colon biopsies to show either lymphocytic colitis or collagenous colitis, these people can be overlooked. Okay, thank you. That's, that's very helpful. Moving on to management, can you tell us about the mainstays of management of this condition? Yeah, management, I think the, the very most important thing to do is really take a good history and uh, establish some type of therapeutic relationship with a patient. Very often, uh, the symptoms are triggered uh, by stress. Sometimes it's family stress, sometimes it's work stress. Sometimes there's some very deep-seated problem. Uh, for instance, studies have shown a significant minority of people with IBS uh, have a, a past history of sexual or physical abuse, and this isn't something that you really can get a history of sometimes initially. So I think you really want to have a relationship so you can better determine what's really triggering it because they may need therapy. That may be something that needs to be uh, dealt with. The same uh, occurs as far as diet. Certainly there may be dietary things that may be triggering it. Maybe uh, they've developed lactose intolerance. Maybe they're drinking soda and uh, with fructose and uh, this is causing the, the symptoms, et cetera. Once you get past that, uh, the therapy is pretty much targeted, uh, tries to target what the symptoms are. If someone, for instance, has constipation, uh, predominant uh, irritable bowel syndrome, just attention to diet, getting fiber in the diet is useful, and putting them on some type of stool softener, I use... Uh, polyethylene glycol, probably more than anything in this country, it's called Miralax, uh, uh, but Metamucil, Cilium, Lactulose are all things that uh, can be useful. Also, sometimes probiotics can help as well. Sometimes this is all that you need. If the symptoms persist, then there's a whole line of uh, new drugs for IBS with constipation. Uh, probably the most popular is linaclotide, uh, which can be taken once a day and is, is quite strong. Uh, if diarrhea is the predominant uh, symptom, uh, then again, a lot of attention to diet, to things like sugars, lactose, fructose, 
uh, caffeine is important. Loperinide is, uh, or Imodium is the brand name in this country, is, is a very good drug just to use as needed, very safe, and uh, can be uh, really all that's needed. Along uh, with that, if this doesn't help and one still has a poor quality of life, there's a whole, but there's a, another a layer of things that can be done, some newer drugs, uh, Laxatine are known as Viberzy is a drug used uh, that's fairly strong. It has to be avoided if you've had your gallbladder out or you drink alcohol, or you may end up with uh, pancreatitis. Alicetron is another drug that's somewhat controlled in this country. It is so strong and can cause severe constipation, uh, but it can be useful as well. If someone has a, a bloating component, sometimes it's worthwhile to do a, a breath test for hydrogen and methane to look for bacterial overgrowth. And if so, uh, an antibiotic such as a rifaximin can be used, and, and that can be useful as well. Okay, thank you. Thanks very much. Um, one other thing that's been mentioned recently is fecal transplantation. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, that is still certainly in, in the research phase and kind of grew out the, the success of fecal transplantation in patients that were current uh, C. difficile colitis. And some of the work has shown that uh, the microbiota in patients with IBS is, tends to be less diverse and may be different than patients that uh, don't have IBS. So the thought was that this could be improve that uh, their symptoms have been improved. And a number of trials, uh, generally small ones, have been done, although not a slam dunk, certainly not 90, 100% of the patients, but a significant number do uh, seem to improve uh, with fecal transplantation. Uh, this can be done through colonoscopy or enemas, or uh, where I work, we actually do it with freeze-dried uh, stool that's uh, been made into a pill form. You have to be very careful about donors and screen them very carefully. There are some instances now of fatal sepsis from patients that had fecal transplantation, not in IBS, but other trials uh, that had a, uh, the donor had a deadly E. coli. So it's something uh, to monitor and could have a role in the future. Okay, great, thank you. Um, let's move on to pitfalls in management. Uh, are there any common pitfalls in the management of irritable bowel syndrome? Well, I think one thing to point out is that there's really no treatment that's just uh, 90 or 100% successful, and it's a combination of things. One of the pitfalls actually in evaluating therapies in clinical trials uh, has been that actually there's a, a large placebo effect from whatever you do. So usually the placebo wing has had 40 to 50% improvement in trials, uh, and yet the, the therapy that the ones that we use are more like 70%. So you always have to keep trying. The group that I've had the most trouble with, uh, and I think most gastroenterologists will tell you this, are patients with bloating. The bloating component is very hard to get rid of. You can use diet, you can use cymethicone, you can use probiotics, you can try antibiotics uh, like rifaximin, and all of these things do seem to help, 
but it is a persistent problem. Okay, thank you. Um, what have we missed? What other common questions are you asked by doctors about irritable bowel syndrome? Well, I think one thing I don't it, that might be worth mentioning that that it's new is uh, the recognition that some of these people have bile acid malabsorption, maybe 20%. Some people say it may be as high as one third of patients. And we have recognized for some time that about 5% of people that have a cholecystectomy uh, will get diarrhea immediately after they eat very precipitously. And if you use uh, something to bind the bile acids like cholestyramine, it will easily uh, prevent it. And we've also known that people that have had uh, distal small bowel resections uh, will have uh, malabsorption of bile acids and get secondary diarrhea. But it's been shown that some IBS patients, particularly those that have the, the uh, very precipitous diarrhea after they eat, sometimes with significant pain, that some of these people actually uh, do have bowel acid malabsorption and they do respond to cholestyramine. You can evaluate these people just with a trial of cholestyramine. There is a, a nuclear scan that's not available in the United States, but it is in Canada and Europe. It's called the SEHCAT scan and people are given bile acids that are labeled and there's a baseline scan and then one in seven days to see how much is left and how much uh, malabsorption or loss that there has been. Uh, you can also diagnose it by measuring total bile acids in the stool. Usually this is done over 48 hours. Okay, thank you very much, Ned. That's very helpful. And thanks to all for listening. We hope that you will be able to put what you've learned into action to better diagnose and manage affected patients. If you want to find out more, click the link in the podcast to sign into BMJ Best Practice and look at the content on this and other relevant diseases. Thank you once again.